It's good to see everyone today. It's a blessing to be here. Um, I invite you to open up your Bibles as we study together. We, we have been looking the past couple weeks at evidences, evidences for the existence of God, evidences for the reliability of Scripture. Uh, today I hope to focus on evidence of the inspiration of Scripture. But, but before we get started, I want to reiterate a few things that I think will be helpful for us to think about as we conclude this series on evidences. Biblical faith is not intended to be a, a blind leap into the dark. Uh, if anything, it's a leap into the light rather than into the dark that we're making. But biblical faith uh, is to be based on evidence. Certainly Hebrews 11 and verse 1 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This isn't just a a wishful thinking. Um, John 10 and verse 37, Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, do not believe me. Jesus didn't want anybody to have a blind faith, uh, a faith uh, that lacked evidence or or lacked uh, a foundation. So while we walk by faith and not by sight, certainly the faith that we have is intended to be grounded in evidence. The truth does not fear investigation. However, that doesn't mean that biblical faith is going to be logically inescapable. If you're determined to find some other explanation for the existence of life as we see it, if you're determined to find some other explanation uh, for the, the origin of Scripture as we see it, certainly you can find another explanation. But the truth seeker is not necessarily seeking the logically inescapable. The truth seeker is seeking the most reasonable conclusion. And so certainly in in what we present today and what we have looked at in the last few lessons, if you're determined that you want to find some other explanation, there there certainly could be other explanations out there. But the question we really need to ask ourselves if we are truth seekers is what is the most reasonable explanation? What, What does the evidence point towards? The question is, am I running towards the truth or am I running away from the truth? Because if I'm running away from the truth, then it doesn't matter what kind of evidence we may present today. Uh, God gives me the freedom to make a choice. And faith ultimately is going to be a choice. We can see the evidence, but we are going to have to choose to respond to that evidence. And so if we are genuinely pursuing truth, I think these lessons will go a long way to strengthen our faith and dispel our doubts. Hopefully, they will also equip us in being able to convince others of the truth of the gospel. Last week, we discussed the reliability of the biblical witnesses. We looked at the intention, the accuracy, the authenticity, the quantity and corroboration and motive and effect of the biblical witnesses. But we don't just believe that the Bible is reliable history. We believe that it's inspired by God. These are the words of God. So what evidence do we have for that today? How do I know the Bible is from God? Is there evidence, not only that the biblical documents are reliable, but that they are divinely inspired, that they are the product not of human minds, but of a divine mind? Well, we'll start with square one here. 
Uh, and certainly, we need to first consider the writer's claims. Are they claiming just to rely, write reliable history, or are they, in fact, claiming that these words are not coming from themselves? We can see in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. And in context, he's been talking to Timothy about the sacred writings of the Old Testament that he's known from his youth. But then he goes on to talk about faith in Jesus Christ. And so kind of combining those two together in verse 16, he says, All scripture, both the sacred writings of old and the scripture that was even then being penned about Jesus, uh, are inspired or breathed out by God. That means it comes from God's mouth. That means its origin is within God's mind. And that's what gives it the power, Paul says, to equip us to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness that we can be thoroughly equipped. Second Peter chapter 1, Peter says in verse 20, No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is not something that Peter claims to have come up with in his own mind. These aren't their own ideas. Um, the source here was the Spirit. This says the Spirit moved them or drove them along. It was directing them. And thus, he can say that they weren't speaking of their own accord, but men spoke from God. And the passage that Luke just read for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, here Paul again says in verse 11, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So here, Paul is saying we, we can't just read the mind of God. Nobody knows the thoughts of God except for the spirit of God himself, just like nobody knows my mind except for my own spirit. However, I can choose to communicate those thoughts. And God has chosen to communicate those thoughts. He says that they have received the spirit of God. And so the words that they are now speaking are not just their own thoughts, their own ideas about what God may or may not think on some issue, but they're speaking what the spirit of God himself is revealing. And so while we can't just guess at the mind of God, we can, by God's grace, read his mind right here in the scriptures. The very words that they spoke, they claim to be from his thoughts and his mind. And so this does not claim to just be a history book. It's certainly not just a story book. It claims to be from the mind of God, his thoughts, his word, and his will. Well, can we substantiate those claims? Is there evidence that it does, in fact, have divine authorship. Well, we could first say that all the evidence that we looked at last week for the reliability or credibility of the biblical witnesses lends credence to these claims. Certainly, we see that they have been reliable, that they've been accurate in every testable point, and now they're making this claim. Uh, if they have told the truth in every other aspect, we would expect them to be truthful in this aspect as well. But we don't just have to take their word for it. We can also think about the unity of the scriptures. 
that 40 different authors over 1,500 years uh, in three different continents, speaking three different languages, from different backgrounds, different social statuses, all composed this book as a unified whole. However, uh, while I think this is a very legitimate evidence of the scripture's d divine orchestration, uh, ultimately this is only going to be evident to the diligent Bible student. This is not an evidence that we can effectively present to somebody who's never sat down and read the scriptures in the first place. And it's only something that we're going to come to appreciate the more and more that we spend time studying the scriptures. And so as far as presenting this as an evidence to other people, it may not be the, the best evidence to present in that way, although it can certainly strengthen our faith as we come to see it more and more within the scriptures. Maybe we could make the argument of the scientific accuracy of the Bible. And I think there are some points to be made here. You can look at the dimensions of Noah's Ark and see how the dimensions of Noah's Ark are some of the exact dimensions that our own Navy has used in putting together very seaworthy uh, vessels. Uh, and certainly there's a contrast there between other ancient uh, flood legends in um, the, the ancient world. The Babylonian myth said that their... Uh, boat in the great flood was a cube. Certainly a cube is not going to float very well, but we, we uh, can see some credence to what the Bible is saying from a scientific perspective. In fact, even some of the laws that they gave the Israelites in regard to food laws or disease laws uh, being circumcised on the eighth day, in fact, uh, without the medical technology that we use today, uh, a young child would not be able to effectively clot blood until about the eighth day after birth. And so you can see the, the scientific logic in some of those laws. But making those points, we need to also recognize that the Bible is not a scientific textbook. And we shouldn't treat it as such. In fact, many times the Bible speaks in poetic language. And so as much as we might see a verse that talks about the circle of the earth, we can also see the Bible in poetic language talks about the four corners of the earth. And so we need to be very careful in trying to make scientific arguments from the Bible because it's not written from that perspective. Uh, and in fact, many things that the Bible talks about are clearly supernatural, miraculous. They're not going to be able to be explained by, by simple, natural, scientific explanation. The Bible, in fact, claims to defy simple scientific explanation. And so while there might be some points we could make here, I don't think that this is where we should kind of uh, found our evidence in, in uh, defending the inspiration of the scripture. What I want us to focus on today, not to discount any of those proofs that we've just talked about, but what I think is perhaps the most convincing proof of the inspiration of the scripture is fulfilled prophecy. And I think the Bible itself even presents this as an evidence. Um, first of all, we can see the principle behind this. The principle is that only a being outside the realms of time and space can see the past, present, and future with equal clarity and thus could tell us with accuracy what is going to happen in the future. In fact, if you look in Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 46, God himself presents this as evidence, really challenging the pagan idols of other nations, saying, if, if you're truly gods, then tell us what's going to happen in the future. Then we'll believe that you're gods. And God himself stakes his claim on being deity and being able to foretell what's going to happen in the future. And so certainly this is not something that human minds could accomplish. 
only a being outside of the realm of, of space and time could tell us with accuracy what is going to happen in the future. But as we approach this, I think we need to recognize something about biblical prophecy. Uh, the meaning of uh, prophecy was not always clear to its original audience. We should not expect to see within the scriptures exact dates or exact times as we look at prophecies about Jesus' death. You're not going to find in the scriptures uh, a statement that says, you know, at 2.59 p.m. on April 3rd, AD 2033, uh, my son Jesus of Nazareth is going to be crucified on a Roman cross. That's not the way that biblical prophecy worked because, in fact, God did not want to reveal the fullness of his plan uh, until the time was right. Prophecy was often written in veiled language on purpose to hide the fullness of God's plan until the time was right. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about this, this concept as the mystery of the gospel. There were things that pointed towards what God was going to do, but it was not yet fully revealed. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, Peter describes this as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The, the picture that we get there is that biblical prophecy is like the light at the end of the tunnel. And as you're walking through the tunnel, you can see the light, you can see the other side, you can see where you're going, but you can't see what's out there yet. It's only when you walk out into the light that you can then see the fullness of what the light is revealing. Well, that's how biblical prophecy is described. It was pointing them in the right direction, but it's only on the other side that we can look back and see the full uh, import of that language and what it is talking about. And so let's keep that in mind as we look at some of these biblical prophecies, is that they were intended to some extent to be stated in veiled language for that purpose. But the prophecies that I want us to focus on today are what we might call messianic prophecies. Um, the word Messiah or the Greek word Christ means the anointed one. Uh, Nelson's Bible Dictionary says the anointed, uh, the one anointed by God and empowered by God's spirit to deliver his people and establish his kingdom. Uh, so when we talk about messianic prophecy, we're talking about the promise of a savior coming to deliver Israel and establish God's kingdom. From our perspective, prophecies about Jesus Christ. And the majority of prophecies within the scripture are ultimately going to be pointing us towards Christ. In fact, uh, I had a Bible teacher named Tommy Peeler who used to say that no list of messianic prophecies is complete unless it includes the entire Old Testament. <laughs> the way the Old Testament is, is that every prophet, every priest, every king, every sacrifice is in some way foreshadowing the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so we are going to narrow our focus a little bit to uh, some of the clearer messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But just remember that the entire Old Testament is foreshadowing this one to come. And so what we're going to limit ourselves to today is prophecies that are historically confirmable. So we're not going to talk about, for instance, prophecies about the virgin birth. Uh, you know, there wasn't a, a doctor there to, to confirm that that was the case. Uh, and so we're, we're not, 
as much as that I do believe is a legitimate prophecy and legitimate fulfillment, we're going to focus on the things that would be more historically confirmable. We're also not going to focus on the things that historians would dispute. We're going to focus on the messianic prophecies that historians in general would generally not dispute were fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. And so I've narrowed our focus down today to 11 prophecies. Uh, and as we said, there are many, many more. Uh, and we're going to go through these quite quickly. Uh, I do have a, a list of them. I sent them out in the email uh, with both the scripture reference um, in the Old Testament and the fulfillment in the New Testament. So I'd invite you to go back and look at that. But for our time today, we're going to move rather quickly through some of these. First of all, the Old Testament does tell us that this coming king was going to be a descendant of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David in verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So they wrap me some limited application to Solomon there, but clearly we're talking about an eternal kingdom here. And so this is not just some physical king. We're, we're talking about the eternal king coming from the descendant of David. In Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, Isaiah says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So here Isaiah tells us that there's going to be one who's going to come and establish an eternal kingdom on the throne of David, a descendant of David, and he's called Mighty God. He's called eternal father. Here, this is clearly not just some earthly king that's being referred to. But we see that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. We can look in Matthew 1 and verse 1 and see from the very beginning, Jesus was son of David. He was a descendant of David. Also, we see from the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Micah 5 and verse 2. We're told, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Clearly, this is not just a, a physical king that we're talking about. This is one whose days are from the days of eternity. A divine king. And he's said to come forth from this little town of Bethlehem. Certainly, we can read the birth narrative in Luke 2 and see Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And all that evidence that we looked at last week of the reliability of the biblical witnesses are going to lend credence to the fulfillment of each of these prophecies as well. But thirdly, we see that it was going to be preceded by a messenger. Malachi 3 and verse 1 we're told, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you uh, in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts so here he says there's going to be one who's going to announce the way 
for me. So this is God coming. And yet he says the messenger of the covenant. One who is going to come and bring this new covenant is going to be announced by a messenger. We see also Isaiah 40 and verse 3, that voice calling out in the wilderness, making smooth the highway for the Lord. Certainly, we can see throughout the Gospels, Jesus was preceded by John the Baptist announcing the way. Also in Zechariah 9 and verse 9, we're told that this king was going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here we see, as we can read in Matthew 21, what we often call the triumphal entry. Jesus was going to come in to Jerusalem on this lowly beast, not something you would normally think of. Uh, in a, uh, a king coming into his city. Thirdly, in Zechariah 11, uh, sorry, fifthly, in Zechariah 11, verse 12 through 13, we read about 30 shekels of silver being the price by which God was valued uh, and it being thrown to the potter in the house of the Lord. Re- read this with me, Zechariah 11 starting in verse 12. And in context here, as we said, a lot of uh, Old Testament prophecy was kind of a foreshadowing. It had an initial application or illustration that is pointing forward towards something else. Well, here Zechariah is prophesying, uh, and he goes to the people to receive payment for his work as a prophet. Uh, It says, I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Now reading Zechariah, it's almost kind of difficult to understand what this is even talking about. Um, here he receives this payment and God says, well, this is the amount that I am valued at by them and throw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. What does that even mean? Throw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. Well, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus is valued at, he is betrayed at 30 shekels of silver. Not 40, not 20, but 30. Not gold, not brass, but silver. And that money is taken by Judas when he feels remorse and he takes it to the temple and he throws it to the, the, the priests and the scribes there. And they see it as blood money. They go and they buy a potter's field to bury criminals. You know, when we read Zechariah, it's hard to even understand. What does it even mean and throw it to the potter in the house of the Lord? Well, when we see, uh, when we've come out of that tunnel into the light, We see 30 shekels of silver being that at which Jesus was valued, thrown to the house of the Lord, ultimately purchasing a potter's field. Also, and now focusing on the crucifixion, Isaiah 53 tells us about the type of pains that Jesus would endure for us. It says in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. 
And you can go and read that passage to, to just about anybody in our society today, uh, and they'll say, well, yeah, that, that's talking about Jesus. Well, here this is written years and years before this happened. And yet we see Jesus suffering in our place, being pierced, being scourged uh, for our sins. Also in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, we're told he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, when he is on trial, doesn't try to defend himself, doesn't try to speak up and, and uh, debunk the, the false accusations against him, but he's silent, like a lamb to the slaughter, being our sacrifice. He did not open his mouth to defend himself. Also in Isaiah 53, in verse 9, and also in verse 12, in verse 9, we're told his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Now, th those are two very different things, right? His grave is assigned with the wicked, and yet he's with a rich man in his death. Those things wouldn't normally go together, but how do we see them come to fruition in Jesus' life? Well, he dies a criminal's death. And by all accounts, he his body should have been discarded just like any other criminal. And yet we see Joseph of Arimathea coming, taking the body, putting it in his new tomb, and so Isaiah 53 and verse 9 is correct on both accounts of him dying a criminal's death and yet being with a rich man in his death. Also Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8, we read, All who see me sneer at me. They separate the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. We see Jesus surrounded by his enemies, mocked and taunted. In fact, in Matthew, using these exact same words that we see in Matthew, uh, in, in Psalm 22. And so we can see here Psalm 22 talking about the exact scenario that we see Jesus in, surrounded by enemies, mocked and taunted. And also later on in Psalm 22, we see a very accurate description of the crucifixion. Starting in verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me, that pierced my hands and my feet. Here, the description of his bones being out of joint, of his hands and his feet being pierced, of him thirsting in this suffering, his tongue cleaving to his jaws. Uh, we see a very accurate description of the suffering that Jesus went through upon the cross. And lastly, in Psalm 22 and verse 18, it says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now those are two different things. Dividing them among them is one thing. Casting lots for them is is. Here we're going to decide who gets it and who doesn't, right? Well, we see both coming true with Jesus. There are some of his garments that they divided out among them, but then there are some that they didn't want to tear. And so to decide who gets it, they cast lots to see who's going to get that garment. Psalm 22 verse 18 told us exactly that that was going to happen. We see that in John 19 verse 23 and 24. 
And so from the beginning of his life to the end, we see all of these prophecies, some of them in very great detail, um, describing to us where he was born, uh, how he was introduced to the world, how he came into Jerusalem, how he was betrayed, the suffering that he went through, uh, all the way up to his last breaths. Well, how do we explain all that? Certainly, the world has some different explanations for this other than it being from the mind of God. Let's examine some of those objections. First of all, possibly this is what we would call post-diction. Webster defines this as the declaration or indication of that which has already come to pass. Instead of being prophecy about something in the future, maybe these things weren't even written before they happened. Maybe somebody, some Christian came along afterwards and, and wrote out these things afterwards and said, see here, it, it fits Jesus' life. Is that a possibility? Well, Zondervan's encyclopedia tells us no responsible critic today would maintain that the Old Testament canon was not available for transmission by the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, which is from 285 to 247 BC. The reason for that is that is when the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament scriptures was uh, made. Uh, we read from two reliable historical documents from the second century BC uh, that uh, connect the translation of this Greek translation of the entire Old Testament with the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus. A man named Demetrius suggested to Ptolemy that a Greek translation of the Jewish religious writings be made, and supposedly 72 Jewish experts were recruited to come to Alexandria and work on the transmission. And so if a Greek translation of the entire Old Testament was made at least 200 years before the time of Christ, then certainly all of the Old Testament writings would have been in existence prior to Jesus' life. And not only that, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls today, physical manuscripts of the Old Testament that scholars date to at least 100 years before the time of Christ. And so it is not a reasonable option. It's not an option that, that any um, qualified historian would seriously consider that these documents were written after the life of Jesus. We have firm evidence that they were in fact written beforehand. Well, what other might explain this away? Perhaps this is self-fulfillment. Perhaps Jesus himself sat down and read the prophecies and said, you know what, I think I can do that. Uh, and this might be reasonable for something like him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Uh, perhaps he was doing that to fulfill Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Um, you know, perhaps he kind of got together with John the Baptist and, and said, well, John, will you introduce me? Uh, and we'll fulfill those prophecies in Malachi and in Isaiah. But what it comes down to is Jesus could not have determined the lineage or place of his birth. He could not have orchestrated the conditions of his betrayal, details of his persecution or method of his death, or the place of his burial. Uh, certainly, these are all things that would have been very much outside of his control as the Jewish mob uh, determines how they are going to treat him and as his body is, is taken uh, away afterwards. But even if, even if Jesus tried to plan it all out and, and orchestrate every little detail to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The fact is, 
If Jesus had attempted to set himself up as the Messiah, the Jewish view of the Messiah would have led him in a much different direction. There were other people who tried to set themselves up as the Messiah. But what did they do? Well, we see from Matthew 20, even Jesus' own disciples had a physical perspective of the kingdom. That if the Messiah was coming, they, they wanted to be set up on his right hand and on his left hand. Not understanding what that truly meant. And so if Jesus was going to try to set himself up as the Messiah, according to the Jewish view, he couldn't die. They didn't have a perspective of, of a crucified Messiah. They had a perspective of a victorious Messiah who was going to conquer Rome, who was going to rule on a literal throne in Jerusalem. And so even somebody who wanted to fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies, even if they could, they wouldn't have done it in this way. It was only after the fact that we come out of that tunnel and we walk into the light that we can see more clearly what all of these prophecies were pointing towards. That's not something the Jewish people understood at the time. Well, maybe this is all just fortunate coincidence. You know, the Bible is not the only book uh, or the only historical record that claims to prophesy about the future. In fact, among the Greeks, it was very common that they would go to different oracles. And these oracles would claim to be able to tell the future. Many times being very educated, very aware of the times, they would make kind of safe predictions. And sometimes those predictions came true. Let me give you an example. The Oracle of Delphi uh, is one of the most well-known oracles. And there was a, a king named Croesus, uh, who was the king of Lydia. And as the Persian army was approaching, he went out to the Oracle of Delphi and said, well, should I attack the Persians? And so the Oracle of Delphi said, if you go out and attack the Persian army, a great kingdom is going to fall. Well, guess whose kingdom it was? <laughs> it was Croesus' kingdom, not the Persian kingdom. Here, that's a very safe prediction, right? In fact, there's really no way that it wasn't going to come true. One way or the other, it would. Is that what we find when we come to the scriptures? That we're just making very safe predictions and, and eventually it's bound to come true? Well, betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and a death penalty that was not even known among the Jews are not very safe predictions. Uh, as, as we see that description in Psalm 22 of, of the piercing of his hands and the feet, uh, of his bones being out of joint, crucifixion is something that was uh, introduced by the Persians and, and really popularized among the Romans, but was not something known among the Jews at all. The Jews might have put somebody up on a stake after having stoned them, and that's why the Old Testament talks about cursed is anyone who is set up on a tree, but they weren't, uh, they didn't uh, involve themselves in hanging people on a cross as a means of execution. Dr. Josef Blisner says crucifixion was unknown in Jewish criminal law. The hanging on a gibbet, which was prescribed by Jewish law for idolaters and blasphemers who had been stoned, was not a death penalty, but an additional punishment after death designed to brand the executed person as one accursed of God. And so these descriptions of the crucifixion, of his hands and his feet being nailed, uh, were not safe predictions. And certainly, if you're going to try to make a safe prediction, specifying an amount of money and, and uh, the, the type of metal that that was going to be composed of and that it was going to be thrown to the potter in the house of the Lord, 
That doesn't sound like a very safe prediction. <laughs> sounds like a very specific prediction that we have fulfilled here. And so compound probabilities makes the fulfillment of all of these prophecies by one man statistically impossible. Let's say for a moment that each of our 11 prophecies had a 1 in 10 chance of coming true in any individual here on earth, which is extremely generous. That means 1 in 10 people is born in Bethlehem. That means 1 in 10 people is born as a descendant of David. That means 1 in 10 people is likely to, to be crucified in this way. If we said one, you had a 1 in 10 chance of any one of these prophecies coming true, compounded probabilities would tell us that uh, the chance of all 11 coming true in any one given person is 1 in 100 billion. Uh, a, a man named Peter Stoner, who's referenced in Josh McDowell's books, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, tried to, to narrow it down a little bit more and take each of eight prophecies, not our 11, but eight prophecies in the Old Testament, and calculate more accurately what the actual probability of each of those coming true in one individual would be. Josh McDowell says, Stoner says that by using the modern science of probability in reference to eight prophecies, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. That would be one in 100 million billion. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we have 10 million billion silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass together thoroughly. All over the state, blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. There is no way that these prophecies that we see could simply have come true by coincidence. Uh, these are not safe prophecies to make. Um, they contrasted with the Jewish conception of the Messiah. Some of them are extremely specific and narrow. And, you know, people might approach this the, the way that they do evolution and say, well, just given enough time, given enough time, certainly whatever the probability, this could have happened. The fact is we don't have all the time in the world because Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 tells us the time window in which this is going to come true. We see as he describes the, the statue there and he talks about the different kingdoms, he gets down to the, the base representing the, the Roman kingdom and he says in the days of these kings, God is going to establish his kingdom. And so we don't have all the time in the world. All of these prophecies had to come true during that time of the Roman Empire. Certainly this is not something that human minds could have put together. This is not something that could have happened by chance. The only valid explanation for the fulfillment of all these prophecies uh, is the foreknowledge 
of God. There is no valid explanation otherwise. And so as we said, if we are determined to find an escape from this evidence, I'm sure we can find it, right? God doesn't make faith in him logically inescapable. But if we're genuinely seeking the truth, what the reason and the evidence points toward, what is most reasonable, I think we can see that the most reasonable option here is that this is, in fact, the working of a divine mind, a being outside of the realm of space and time who can see the past, present, and future with equal clarity and can tell us and orchestrate for us exactly what's going to happen in the life of his son sent down to earth to die for you and for me. And brethren, if the Bible is in fact not just reliable history, but in fact the words of Almighty God, then it deserves our greatest attention. We need to be listening to it. We need to be feeding upon it day in, day out. Can you, can you imagine that the thoughts, the will, the character of Almighty God has been recorded for us within the pages of this book? What an amazing gift God has given us. Let's make sure that we're taking advantage of it. Let's make sure we're using it and following it, heeding his voice in our lives from day to day. What about you? We're about to sing a song, and as we sing that song, let us each consider a question in our minds. How have I responded to the words of Almighty God? Have I been giving them the attention that they deserve? Have I been obeying them and following them? If you recognize that you have not been following the Lord, that you need to make a change, that's why we're here. We're here because we recognize that we are far from being who God wants us to be. And it's only by his grace that we can be transformed to reflect the image of God once again. If you haven't made that commitment to the Lord, if you haven't confessed your belief in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, by God's grace, you can bury the old man of sin in the waters of baptism. And not by your own strength or your own righteousness, but by the power of God, his grace, the power of the resurrection, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. Are you walking that life today? If not... Won't you make a change? If there's any way that we can help you in turning back to the Lord uh, or in committing your life to him for the first time, we ask that you'll let us know uh, by coming forward as we sing together.